Because what the three of you don't know is that I've had hours and hours of delightful film conversation with each of you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not something uh, that I can say that I get to have very often with people. I think growing up, I was lucky to know a few film fans who were a little older than me who were able to tell me about some good movies and kind of push me in the right direction. Um, but when you talk to someone who does really like movies and who really enjoys the diversity of storytelling, I mean, I always say I, I watch movies for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. People who want to assume that I only watch highbrow films, which Chris, of course, <laughs> would immediately shoot down. <laughs> but uh, but they're always, and I always point out, but yeah, but I've got all this smut and all this sleaze <laughs> and, you yeah. know, monsters biting people's heads off and things. And, and I enjoy those movies just as much. I, I don't really like the Mystery Science Theater 3000 idea of making jokes about movies, although I'll make a joke about a movie and it's fun to watch a film, and, but it's more fun to do it in real life, I think, than to have canned jokes. Um, so I, I personally am not a fan of that. I, mean, I think you like that. Though. I like, love MST3K. Yeah. And then I love Rift Tracks. Although I know I've heard that they watch the film several times before they actually f- sit down and film their commentary. It feels extremely fresh and it feels very off the cuff. It does not feel like canned humor at all to me. And I think that um, they love movies. It's, I think it's clear. They make a lot of references throughout all the movies as well that I think that they're clearly people who enjoy film. And yeah, I like I it a lot. I think they do. I think they do. Yeah. There's another um, outlet that it reviews films um, online, uh, Red Letter Media, and they're very popular. They have a lot of hits. They get millions of views on, on the, YouTube. their film reviews. Yeah. And one of the things they do regularly is called Best of the Worst, where they may watch four or five films together, but they show you the 20 or 30 funniest minutes of that experience. And one of the guys who's on their team just laughs at everything. You know, if a movie's from the 1970s, oh, he'll laugh about the cars, he'll laugh about the clothes, he'll laugh about the wood paneling. Somebody will order a hamburger, he'll laugh at the hamburger. And I don't I don't understand what he's laughing at. Yeah. Like, <laughs> for me, that's the, the enjoyment of the film comes not from mocking or laughing at these pictures into another world, but instead enjoying that atmosphere, if you can. In some films, you can't enjoy. I mean, some films don't have atmosphere. But... I think one thing I, I realized about watching films from the 70s, a lot of what I've been watching lately seems to be kind of rooted in that decade, is that, well, first of all, I was I was born into that decade, so it's soothing to me on that level, I think, because it I'm nostalgic about it in a way I'm not nostalgic, say, about the 60s, but or, or going farther back, if you want to say. I'm not really nostalgic about the 1740s, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I'm not, you know, but... Uh, the other thing is that that was still an era when technology was man's servant rather than its master. <laughs> yeah. And you don't see anybody being worried about that in those movies that say, for instance, when they go out for a walk, they're out of communication with people. That's normal. That's fine. You're on a walk, you know. And, and that I find soothing as opposed to a film made today that involves cell phones and involves, you know, all kinds of instant forms of communication. Another thing is that in the 70s, the, the middle class still lived. There was still a middle yeah, class. There was still, yeah. And you could, you could have a two-car garage and you could put your kids through college. That was still on the table. That was still an option. You had to work for it. But it was available to a much greater number of Americans than it is now. So I think that watching those films, I don't have to – I don't second-guess them in the way I would second-guess films today where I think like, oh, yeah, they're living in that apartment on an out-of-work actor's salary or whatever, you know. Yeah. That kind of thing. It's more. It's easier to take in those, in that. So I, I don't know. 
Well, that website you mentioned sounds idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> now, MST, of which I'm a fan, they choose really bad films. It's very rare that they stumble upon a good film or even an average fair above bad film and use it. The stuff that they show is so bad that I would never watch these films unless it was an MST. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of that is a judgment. They're the films that are so bad that they're boring, not even entertaining bad. They're just, you know, like if you were Titanic, to watch them. Like Speed, <laughs> Ghost. Uh, like those sorts of movies, right? Oh, no. Oh, okay. I thought that might be what you were referring to. Um, no, I know what you mean. There are films that are so bad, they're, they are not entertaining on the internet. Yeah, and then yeah. there's something it, like it's Mitchell. It's impossible to watch. You know, the Joe Don Baker they uh, did cop movie. That that. They, yeah, I know. I, that's one of the few that I've actually watched from beginning to end, I would say. Because, uh, frankly, the only person that I allow to break into my movies and make jokes is Elvira. (laughs) I'm I'm always okay with her. She's fine. Her sense of humor and mine are synchronous. Doesn't she just do that on the breaks, between the commercial breaks? Yeah, they just did a new line of uh, Elvira movies, actually, where they... um, a little like spider web opens up in the bottom corner of the screen and she'll toss in a line or two and the little spider web thing closes oh, up. Like pop-up video. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think they would call it a pop-up video, in fact. <laughs> and uh, I, I do find those um, a little a little more jarring. A lot of times I think it's just the production because the sound is mixed in such a way that I can't hear her jokes that well. I like it better when she's got command of the camera. So. <laughs> Well, I'm like you, going back to how you started, in that I never had a community or friends that had the interest in film that I do, and um, and that meant ultimately that the people, the other geeks that I talked to, were on the internet. So that's how I started. Was uh, in the '90s to write about movies. Was I got on a, a listserv or two, and I was writing reviews and just interacting with other people that I had never met about movies but in, within my immediate circle I have people who like movies but they don't study it you know, <laughs> I'm like assuming I, that this was in a more private place say than a talk back on a I mean you know, like you guys were talking amongst yourselves I just mean email oh, rather than right. instant talk yeah it was very invigorating at the time because this was a new world for me to have other people who were as fascinated by film as I was did you ever take a film class no I did. I took two. <laughs> I had no intention of uh, going into film. It was more, you know, it was art school. Do you think you came away from it with a greater knowledge or appreciation of film, or did it help turn you on to somebody? Not really. It um, like, it, the, like the professor? <laughs> I, I did have a very tasty professor. Um, but, uh, no, it was I was in art school, and I had no intention of going into film. It was more I was picking up electives, and because I enjoyed film so much, I figured – It'd be not just easy electives, but I mean, not easy, easy for me because I knew more going in than people who would, you know, their favorite movie was, I don't know, a bad example, but the Titanic, yeah, who who thought Titanic was the epic uh, twister. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, the, the stuff that I got turned on to, it was, uh, I still remember this art film that was a female artist basically took like a, a porn film that had been, it was shot actually on 35 millimeter, but it degraded so much cause it was from the seventies. And so it just had like this real abstract quality to it. Like you couldn't, you could occasionally make out a body, but it was just, it was really just beautiful to look at. And that sticks out in my head. 
but yeah, it was, and the only A plus I ever received in my life was on a <laughs> paper about Battleship Potemkin. 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 I was trying to, I was trying to say it properly, and it came out all jumbled. Uh, were you in a situation where you felt like the movies were being presented in a in an open discussion, or do you think your professor had an axe to grind? Because I think that's what happens. These guys get axes to grind. <laughs> No, no, it was it was uh, as with a lot of professors and teachers at my school, it was all artists that were trying to, you know, make their own work and kind of needed the paycheck. And so uh, but but with that actually came a lot of uh, fantastic teaching because they didn't have an agenda, really. It was just basically like, hey, here's some movies that are interesting to me. What do you think of them? And because we were so close to NYU, which like kind of, you know, the quote unquote real film students were going to, it, you know, it, everybody knew that we weren't that serious about film. Um, I mean, in more than just, a, you know, just enjoying film. So there was not going to be any future filmmakers in our class. And so I think that also gave a lot of freedom to the teacher. Well, Robert, what about you? And, and I know as a film teacher, you've got some things to say about that, but what's the first time you remember being able to discuss films with other people that you felt were on the same wavelength that you were? I actually had a very similar story to Pam's. I was studying art and art history and took a survey, a, a film history survey, just a survey class, and, and I got started getting really excited about the films, and I actually dropped the class because I... I had uh, because you were uh, so excited. About I, the <laughs> no, it was weird because I had I said, "Oh, I'm 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 getting distracted from my art studies. It's it's distracting me. If you chase more <laughs> than one rabbit, you won't catch any." And so I said, "Okay, I'm dropping that class." And then I got rejected from a student art exhibition like a month or it had to be just a couple weeks later because I, you know I was like, "Oh, well." You know, there's no artistic criteria in art anymore. It's up to someone else to decide what's good art. And I said, there's still there's still technical criteria in film. You can tell a well-made, well-crafted film. And so I, I I went and talked to the teacher, begged her to let me back in. She signed me. She, I got back in the class, and then that was basically the tipping point for me. Um, I would talk to people about the kinds of films we watched as teenagers, you know, Mad Max and Road Warrior. <laughs> uh, but in, in terms of the art films and the stuff I was starting to lean towards, there wasn't really anyone until film school and then, you know, what happens afterwards. You, you start running in those circles and then having much more interesting conversations than Mel Gibson's Leathers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting in itself. Speak for yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, he, I do know he's the only one that actually had real leathers in Mad Max. Everyone else had <laughs> had PVC imitation leather. Even Tom Hardy. Yeah. yeah well, the new one probably is real, real leather. Yeah. That, that's the original. That's the, I'm talking the '79. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, <laughs> yeah, I know. Does. I know. Yeah. I've seen them all. Well, yeah, well, I was just so so ecstatic when they re-released in in the in the original Australian language version finally, which was long overdue. Thank you for joining us on the Mad Max podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've digressed already. It's so soon. It's like I just started talking, and there there are no digressions. <laughs> only 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 more films to talk about. Um, are you involved more in teaching students about the how-to of making films, or do you get to watch movies with your class? Uh, both. I mean, I really do stress the hands-on part of it because we want them to get jobs. And uh, and having worked as a, a grip and gaffer and that kind of stuff, I, I, I teach all those nicknames that you don't get in film school usually. And and uh, but I love I, I actually the stuff I really enjoy doing is the theory and the and when I get the chance to teach the film history classes that's that's just the the most fun for me because then it's basically doing what 
what I would do with my friends, talking about movies that I really care about and why they're important and convincing new people. And it does work sometimes. <laughs> I can get I can get some of them excited about about movies. I oh I, I showed uh, the Passion of uh, Joan of Arc, uh, mm. and it was it was almost a universal hit. I was astounded. They they really liked it, and it was you know people who had never seen a silent film ever before. And I mean that one, of course, The Dryer stands out uh, yeah. amongst them all. But uh, it's that's always really fulfilling when they when you get the excitement from showing a movie that you know is great that they haven't never heard of. I'm impressed to find out that a silent film actually went over well with the class. I'm glad to hear it, but yeah, and they're they're you know 19, 20 year old kids who don't know anything about anything, <laughs> and, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> what are what are some of the things that you might say to someone who is getting into the world of silent film and and watching the movies? I found that it really helped me to make sure that I wasn't doing anything else when I was watching the movie. When you can hear a film, you can get up and get a drink or something and come back and you haven't missed anything. A silent film really demands your full attention, wouldn't you say? Yes, and I, I, one of the things I often say is that you have to make allowances because in many cases the style of acting was different. It was more yeah. theatrical, uh, thinking of drama in particular. and. A lot of times when I'm looking at a silent film, I'm looking at the history of film and how technique was being developed. So there's more of a curiosity about history. Um, but it's if interesting. If you're just going for sheer entertainment, it's going to be an adjustment for you if all you're used to yeah. is sound film. The, the, the comedy is less so because that language is so easily translatable, the visual comedy of Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, and so forth. But with drama, you have to sort of settle in and hold back your judgment because there are some pearls in the, in the midst of a lot of dross. And silent film was a, uh, originally just aimed at working class, often audiences that didn't even speak English. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a simple melodramatic approach to most drama, and sometimes it was just clumsy by our standards. There is kind of a funny thing how film has almost gone back to being international again. It was in the silent era because you know, many great German films played here and from every other country. But there was a long time of segregation where a foreign film wasn't really going to get an audience in, in America. And now films from all over the world seem to be popular once again. It's also just in terms of the American market, it was, I think, 2004 that uh, American-made movies make more overseas now than they do domestically. Yeah. So, and it has, it has and this keeps just going up overseas. So they're making most of their money uh, China and yeah. In the other, in you know, places that were essentially off limits for years. So, and is that because they're more tolerant of Hollywood bullshit, or is it because <laughs> going to the movies is still an affordable and reasonable recreation? I think both. Those are both good reasons. I think that that uh, they, they and it's certain movies that are going to play better over there. Hollywood bullshit are the kinds of movies that do really well there. Um, the the ones that you don't need subtlety with the action genre especially it's similar to silent film in the fact that you know you don't need a language necessarily if someone's sitting there kicking someone's ass for 10 minutes you don't necessarily <laughs> need subtitles for that yeah. and so yeah. it translates really That's well true. i think it's actually kind of in a destructive element of american film because yeah. it's emphasized the mindlessness aspect yeah, yeah. the, the so least common denominator they want to appeal to even wider and wider audiences and I'm not so sure that it's worked the other way around. I'm not seeing a, 
appreciably more foreign films gaining acceptance in the United States. I mean, they play at art houses, but I don't see them in the in the multiplexes. I think I was thinking more about video on demand and Netflix and, yeah. and uh. other ways, because like a movie like Troll Hunter, yes. um, which was a was it Norwegian? I'm not sure, but I think it was Norwegian. I've talked to so many people who have seen it, and it's hard for me to imagine if that movie came out in the '80s that so many people would have seen it. You yeah. know, maybe also um, even the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the originals, yeah, the original. and, and uh, they'll let the right one in. Yes, those those did get wide. And those were both Dealing, films yeah. that you mentioned, or in one case, a series of films that were remade for American audiences, yeah. but to diminishing returns. I mean, I didn't yeah. see the American version. Yeah, and yeah. I've heard they're not even going to make the sequels uh, for the, the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd heard that too. Yeah. Well, the David Fincher version of Dragon Tattoo was, I think, a, technically a better film, but I didn't really like the material that much anyway, so it didn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't have the same novelty and right. it, that that original did. It's, yeah, it had that feeling. I just want to go back to the silent film. The, the one technical thing that uh, uh, the part of the real foreignness uh, to our eyes is uh, just a technical thing. They had what was called orthochromatic film stock that could not see the color red. So that was part of that heavy makeup aspect of it. That pancake makeup was because of the film stock could not see. Uh, red so so that you know it looks like so a completely what, different what color was mary pickford painting her lips <laughs> yeah they were they were actually having to put that white makeup on so otherwise they would be very dark uh-huh. people uh, people's faces would look very dark without that white pancake makeup and so it wasn't until 1927 that the the what the panchromatic film stock came about which had could see the whole spectrum in in black and white and it was still black and white but but it could see all the colors so um, it, that that alone makes that that real high contrast where you know it looks very blown out all the time. That's part of just the the limitations of the technology at the time, which looks very foreign to us now when we're watching the early stuff. Well, even into the 1950s when they were doing Superman for television, uh, his original costume, red and blue, read terrible on camera, uh-huh. and they changed it pretty quickly to gray and brown because that read better. But when you see behind the scenes photos you know and color snaps taken of him and he's wearing a gray and brown suit it it looks rather odd (laughs) (laughs) i don't know anyway well with silent films as well there's been so much deterioration and so many that have been lost also but the image that often that we're seeing is not the way audiences saw them originally they're much less crisp they've faded and so well and the fact that we call them silent film but almost never were they played without at least some musical accompaniment in in the bigger cities full orchestras oh it was essential you had to have music otherwise it was just dull and dirt i mean passion of joan of arc i was fortunate enough to see that at uh centennial hall when they came and showed it with a full orchestra when they played the and it was just some life-changing experience But, you know, not always the case with silent films. You'd have some guy on an organ or a piano, yeah, which yeah. <laughs> not, not the same effect. <laughs> yeah, and there's only a handful of those players or even the, the people who were children at the time and were working as apprentices to organists, like Rosa Rio is one name that comes to mind, who's done scores for films, uh, played along with silent films, because she brought, you know grew up in that atmosphere and knew what the original thing was. But I don't even think she performs anymore. So. Um, what was something about Dreyer's Joan of Arc that you think worked and connected with this younger audience? Well, I think the the revolutionary aspect of was is just the use of cl- like cl- almost exclusively close-ups, and that feels very modern. 
and you're you really you're there with her during the trial. <laughs> I always remember to, um, the movie Philadelphia by uh, Jonathan Demme, yeah, uh, with with Tom Hanks, and it it was all close ups, and I was I I started getting obsessed with that. It distracted me from from the film <laughs> because funny. I was getting waiting for him to do a two shot, and it it just, it just he never was, happened. He was so. he was quoting Dreyer apparently. So <laughs> I just wasn't uh, enough yeah. of a film fan to know it. Um, yeah, and then also by the way, that was also one of the first films to use the new panchromatic film stock. So he was able to have her without makeup uh, in a much more naturalistic performance and, and uh, you know, much more uh, realistic looking. So that was, I think that was a big shift for, and, you know, they're able to connect to it. It's less foreign. I mean, it's a foreign film. I keep thinking of the name Jean Seberg, but was that the 60s? Was she a fashion yeah. model? Was she associated with Joan of Arc? Or am I? It was the yeah, George well, Bernard that, Shaw version uh, that yeah. Otto Preminger did, I think. Yes, exactly. That was the film she did right before Breathless. St. Uh, Joan. Yes, yeah, St. Joan. So she was Joan of Arc, but uh, it's um, uh, Falco. Uh, uh, Edie Falcon. Not Edie. Uh, <laughs> no, it was oh, Falcon Eddie. Falcon, Falcon Eddie. Thank you. Renee I knew Falcon it was Eddie. Yeah, 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 thank you. I was going to say that someone, I knew someone had to have it down right. The Rock Me Amadeus guy. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, didn't know. Oh, man. Didn't know he went so far back. So I didn't know we could swear in this show, by the way. Yeah. Well, we're, we're finding it out. I mean, can, can, we, can we swear? I know I can swear like a sailor. It, but, did, it did shock me a little. Well, but then I didn't. I followed you immediately after. You, uh, you copycatted. It, it, you know, we might have to cover it up with a, um, uh, the sound of a film going out of sprocket. <laughs> on a, <laughs> <laughs> I keep hitting the chords here. Jim hates that. 